This has been a day of celebration, a day we see God's uh, grace at work, uh, we, a day that will be remembered for, for many. Uh, and having seen God at work, we now come to listen to God speak as he speaks to us through his word. If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open to Psalm 55. The Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann, which doesn't mean much to for most, but uh, he's uh, kind of one of the, the heavyweights. Uh, he breaks the Psalms up into three categories. He says there's, there, there is uh, Psalms of orientation, of disorientation, and reorientation. Uh, the orientation are those that just kind of speak about what God's like and, and show us uh, how we can relate to him. Disorientation are the ones that uh, experience the pains of life. And the reorientation are the ones that are in the midst of that, but are, are seeing hope and being pointed back towards the Lord. And Psalm 55 fits really into both the second and third category of disorientation, which we see at the beginning, and then the early process of reorientation. And I think it's helpful for all of us that even though this is a day of celebration, certainly among us are those who are, are hurting, uh, and those who are even celebrating today will, unfortunately, in this broken world, be hurting at some point. And so these words uh, that are recorded for us from King David are of practical benefit. Psalm 55, I'll read through the entirety of the psalm, and then we will look at it uh, from uh, somewhat of a, of a helicopter view this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I'm restless in my complaint, and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not... Do not depart from its marketplace, for it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their hearts. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning, at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and He hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from, from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old, because they do not change and they do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against my, his friends. He violated his covenant. 
His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. But I will trust in you the word of our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this word, we pray that though there is much darkness, that we would also see the light that the author sees, that we would turn our attention from other things, giving now ear to your word, that we may be encouraged and enlightened and renewed. Lord, bless us, we pray, through the study and the contemplation of this word. To you be all praise, not only in this church, but throughout the world. This we desire, we pray, in Christ who is the word incarnated. Amen. Any of you familiar with the the lyrics, Hello Darkness, My Old Friends? I've come to talk with you again. And the song goes on and the lyric, the verse goes on and says, because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping and the vision that was planted in my brain still remains. Now, many of you are probably familiar with the story. It uh, was uh, performed by uh, Simon and Garfunkel and 50 years ago. Uh, but it continues to, to speak and is, is uh, even to, to other generations ostensibly it was written as kind of a homage homage to Art Garfunkel's great friend, a tribute to him remembering his own experience as he had experienced sudden onset blindness even while he was still in college and the darkness that inspired the words. And yet subsequently the imagery as a metaphor has been embraced and certainly felt by many who have experienced the darkness in another form in the, in the sense of, of depression and, and discouragement. The words just seem to speak. The words themselves personify the idea of darkness, calling it a friend but not a friend that anybody wants, something that is so familiar but something that one longs to escape from. And these words would have been appropriate if they would have been the beginning of the psalm. Certainly they reflect the the mindset and the experience of the psalmist, who is in this case King David. He was in a dark place. He was overwhelmed. He was feeling the anxiousness and the angst of things that were going on in his life. And and we see two reasons for that uh, that are listed in in this psalm. Uh, One is just the circumstances of life. Perhaps uh, you might uh, chalk it up to uh, situations, um, consequences, uh, difficulties from job. Uh, I guess as the king, you have your own challenges every once in a while. I mean, the old joke is it's good to be the king uh, until uh, people don't like the king or they don't like the country. 
And so we see him describing in the early verses about what's going on around in verse 3. He's hearing the noise of the enemy, and there's oppression that the wicked are putting on his people. And we just see the ugliness of day-to-day life, and then he's feeling the weight of the one who is responsible for our people. And he's also feeling the weight of the fact that some of the people, the ones that are the oppressors, the ones that are the enemy, they don't like him in particular. And, and it just eventually just wears and it drains and he's feeling that darkness. But then he goes a little bit further and we see as he's talking about this and he says essentially if it was just day-to-day business, if this was just all there was, it was just this was the way things were and there's ugliness in the world, I could probably deal with that. But he gets a double kick in the gut because, as we see revealed, is he's also lamenting and mourning and stung by the betrayal of a friend. We see that as he speaks um, in, in these verses, uh, beginning in verse 13 um, or verse 12, for it's not an enemy who taunts me, I could, I could bear that. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me, I could hide or I could just ignore that. But it's you, a man, my my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take counsel together within God's house. We walked with the throng. He's describing somebody who was once very, very close. And uh, and now, not only has he gone away, not only is there a fracture in a relationship, but this person has turned on him. This person has now become his enemy, a double sting. And imagine the words of William Shakespeare, uh, one of his sonnets here, because he says, a rose that festers smells far worse than weeds. In other words, it's, it's one thing you just expect weeds to have a particular odor, but that when the rose that just kind of withers away, there's an aroma, there's a sadness or something broken, and he's experiencing that in the nature of the relationship. And so because he, these two things that are going on in his life, he's seriously discouraged. He is seriously overwhelmed. Uh, in fact, the, the pressures are such that he indicates that he's, he's frightened. He's got fear. What David is describing here and what he is experiencing is what St. John of the Cross would call a dark night of the soul. Now, what is a dark night of the soul? One commentator put it this way, a dark night of the soul is a dark period when One feels depressed, lost, and lonely. Everything seems meaningless, hollow, and empty. And it may be that there seems little to no meaning in life and nothing makes sense anymore. Another commenting on that says that a dark night of the soul feels like depression because those in the midst of a dark night experience similar symptoms to what a depressed person experiences. But it's also important to note that a dark night of the soul is something different than mere depression. A dark night of the soul, though chilling, is a time where you go through an intense period of spiritual development. As another commentator speaks and says, it's, it's the, the circumstances force you to shed some long-held spiritual views because they no longer stand up to reality. And then at the same time, God who is at work within the one whom he loves is bringing into birth new insights, deeper 
appreciation, deeper experience of God's presence and spirituality. And so the old, which may be true-ish, are replaced by the deeper truths, things that are more faithful to what God has said, but sometimes difficult to understand. And these things are often only born in times of challenge and in difficult. It's a dark night of the soul is a, a transformation process. And we see that happening here in David's life. Now, it's interesting that many Bible scholars try to pinpoint when exactly this happened. When, when was this? And so they'll look and search through the scriptures, and most commentators will uh, assume that it was happening in 2 Samuel 16. Uh, during a time of Absalom, David's son, who had rebelled against his father, he wanted the throne. Uh, and that itself would certainly be, uh, be painful. But in, in 2 Samuel 16, we see that one of David's trusted advisors, a close friend, um, actually sided with his son in the rebellion the pain of the betrayal. And that may very well be, but if you, you know, do a deep dive into this, there's a lot of things that circumstantially that don't really fit what David is describing there. And so it's quite possible that what David is describing here is a situation that God hasn't chosen to record for us in, in the history of Israel or in David's experience. We only know it because of David's experience. But one of the things that's important for us to recognize is I think that we're better off by the fact that God doesn't specify doesn't give a name, doesn't tell the situation, because the vagueness of this allows every one of us to enter into David's experience and situation. We're able to identify it by our own disappointment and bruises and wounds that we may have experienced um, from friends, uh, friendships that have broken, circumstances in our own lives. If we're given all of the details, there's this tendency for us to just kind of chalk it down and we you know, recite it and we know it, and it just becomes kind of a historical tidbit. But the way David is writing this psalm and the way the Lord has recorded it, it is an invitation for every one of us to embrace the reality of our either a present dark night or remembering past dark nights or prepare for the dark nights that may come in the, in the days ahead. Every one of us is invited into this situation because what we see David expressing is real and it is raw and it is common and God puts it in here so that we would know that and so that when we face our own dark nights that we would be prepared and know how we can respond in a way that we can emerge from the shadows of the darkness into the light, into God's grace, being transformed, experiencing the benefit of the dark night, not just dwelling in the dark night, not just dwelling in that darkness. And so we look at David. Now, one of the things that jumps out here is his candor, his, his admission of, of fear. We see him saying it, you know, bluntly, I'm, I'm afraid. And then we see the characteristics that are consistent with fear as he's describing what he's feeling and, and what he's thinking. And I think it's an important thing for us to, to stop and to look at. Because all of us experience fear. But many Christians are afraid to admit they're experiencing fear. For the fear that fear is a sin. I mean, the Bible says 365 times, do not fear in some expression or another. You know, there's a pretty clear, don't do it. And, you know, we kind of grow up with this idea, if God says don't do it, then you don't do it. If you do something that God says don't do, well, that qualifies sin, right? 
And, but fear is such a complex issue that is not really that simple. Fear itself is not necessarily sin. It is not fear that is sin. It is what we fear or how we respond to fear that may or may not lead us into sin. Think about it this way. If all of a sudden we just hear this loud boom sounding from outside and you jump in your seats, would it be appropriate for me to say, aren't you secure in Jesus? Fear is a natural instinct. Fear is something that uh, leads us to, to think and to act to preserve life and preserve others. Fear, in some senses, is actually a good thing. The issue is not whether we experience fear, but whether we dwell in the fear and then how fear ends up shaping the way that we see things and the way that we look at things. Listen to these words from uh, Dan Allender and Tremper Longman from their, their book, the, the Cry of the Soul. Fear distorts our perception of ourselves so that we seem weaker than we really are. It distorts the size of the problems so that they seem huge and undefeatable. But perhaps most significantly, fear distorts our picture of God. God seems weak, uninvolved, or uncaring. In the midst of our troubles, after all, we, we think if, if he were strong and he were concerned, he wouldn't leave me in this mess. And so fear comes in, and fear is a natural instinct. Fear is common for all of us, but fear has an erosion capability because it distorts the way that we look at the world. It distorts the way that we look at ourselves. We're just afraid that we're undone by whatever the circumstance that either is threatening us or might threaten us. And, and then it, it, it looks larger, makes things look larger, you know, kind of like the rearview mirror, um, things are closer. It, it, it distorts uh, the, the way that we, we perceive things. And Allender and Longman go on and say, fear reverses reality by making evil seem all-conquering and God seem impotent. See, when we recognize we have fear, as David is doing here, that itself is not a problem. But when we allow fear to distort the way that we begin to see our experience, our, this world, our lives, our situations, we, if we allow fear to be the, uh, the, the primary voice, the, the authorizing narrative, then we're no longer dealing with reality because fear distorts things. But David actually responds here in a way that I hope is encouraging for us because David here, through all of his admission, is, he comes to a fork in the road. You know, he comes to a point. He's acknowledging his fear. He's talking about the circumstances. Almost all of us, all of us would be you know, hurt and wounded uh, and, and beat down, and discouraged by either of these situations, much less both. I mean, sometimes the world does feel oppressive and overwhelming, and, and sometimes, um, you know, the, the wounds of a, of a broken relationship, the disappointment of somebody who should be close, uh, when, uh, really kind of sucks the, the, the life out of us. In David's case, he's, he's experiencing both at the same time, and some of you may have had similar experiences now David recognizing this is how I'm feeling and probably aware of what Allender and Longman later record as they look into his experience that, you know, this is my present experience, but the question is, 
how am I going to deal with this? How am I going to deal, not just with the circumstances, but how am I going to deal with how I'm relating to, how I'm seeing myself, how I'm seeing these situations? And so he comes to the fork in the road. Psychologists tell us that whenever we face such threatening times, we are naturally inclined to respond in one of four ways. We respond with either fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. The fight sort of makes sense. We, we see something threatening, and the natural response for some, or in some circumstances, is to fight back. We see something that is threatening, we become more threatening, and we, we fight that. And in some cases, that is certainly very appropriate. We fight the things, and we prevail, at least if we are fighting for that which is righteous. We would assume that David would have had this instinct because he's a warrior, he's been in many battles. Certainly he has this instinct when he sees something threatening, he would fight. It was certainly true of him as, as a youth, it was true of him other times. Although we don't see a whole lot of evidence in it in this particular passage, and so that gives you some idea of just how overwhelmed he, he must have been feeling because he's not saying that he wanted to fight in any way, um, but we know that it was part of his capacity. The fawning part is, well, he doesn't show that either. Okay, I can just go kiss up to whoever it is, and you know, maybe they'll like me. Doesn't seem to be his makeup where we see him, and it certainly doesn't seem to be evident here. Freeze? Well, we see that as a temptation. We see it very close because, you know, he's stopping, he's pausing. Now frozen means he does it somebody who does nothing. Uh, they just kind of totally shut down, and he seems to be fighting off that temptation even as we see him processing throughout this psalm. And even flight, you wouldn't expect from such a warrior, but he's pretty vivid about that in, in this particular passage. And he, and he even says, you know, fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. In verse 5 and verse 6 he says, and I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry and find shelter from the raging wind and tempest. And we see the fear and the temptation. He's processing this and he's thinking, can I run away? Well, if I had wings, maybe I could get far enough away. I would just go. This, this is what I would rather do. I would rather flee right now. And so he goes through this whole process and, uh, and, and he has this, this full range of the normal psychological experiences, the things that go through all of our minds. But see, those things create one fork, not four different forks. They're just four different expressions of, of the same path, of the same road. The other fork is the one that David takes here. David doesn't give himself just to these emotions, although they are, are certainly present. But David takes a, another approach, and we see it evidence in this whole psalm. Because David is not fleeing nor even fighting, but rather he turns to God and he prays and he's recorded that for us all here. And the psalm itself is a reminder to us of just what a gift prayer is. And it is much more freeing and much more open and more honest than most of us tend to be in our prayers, whether public or private. I mean, look at the categories, the, the things that David starts praying here. And one of the things that is also interesting here, because one of the reasons we're doing this series in Psalms is we want for you to look at this and not only experience with the psalmist and know that God understands because he's recorded this, but the Psalms give us a language of prayer. But what 
the problem with that is we tend to think that it will follow the pattern like the Lord's Prayer or the, you know, the Acts, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving. And these Psalms that we see, they're like somebody, you know, an eight-year-old boy with ADD having just drunk Mountain Dew. You know, it just, he's here and he's there and he's wherever else. But I love that. And the reason I love that is because I am that. And it's not just me. I mean, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of circumstance, in the midst of depression, how awful would it be to have to say, okay, I'm going to pray. Oh, I got to get in the right order here. Up, oh, that's that doesn't fit. We see David not only engaging God, but then also kind of talking to himself. We see his mind that is not necessarily directed at God, but he's mindful that he's addressing God in his prayer. He is just expressing himself. And then he's reminding himself of who God is and what God has promised. But some of the things that he says here and here are, 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 are surprising and maybe even sort of scandalous because look, for example, here in, in verse 10, destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in this city. Um, and he continues on, day and night they go on around its walls and iniquity and trouble within it. Uh, and, and, he's, and he's he's calling for the Lord to to bring destruction. And then in verse 15, let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, which just means let them be buried alive for evil is their dwelling. These don't seem like nice prayers. Now, he's under stress. And so they may be, you know, we, we say they're, they're, they're understandable. But for somebody who's spiritually mature, a man after God's own heart, I mean, it seems so inappropriate to be praying things like this, right? And then others will come along and say, well, this is the old covenant in the Old Testament, and he didn't know. And so as Christians, we just, you know, we know that's how they used to pray, but we can't pray like this. And I would say, if anybody's ever told you that, don't listen to them anymore. Because we still feel this. And what we see in David here. And just our understanding of the way that all of Scripture instructs us is there's important insights here. First of them is that God invites us to just be honest before Him. We don't polish ourselves up when we come before God, when we talk to Him, when we pray. Let it out. David says in this psalm, I moan and I'm rumbling and I'm, you know, and then he lets out these things that. You know, there's an intensity. He's not saying this like a Hallmark card. Let them be buried alive. And you need to know that God wants to deal with you however it is that you're feeling regardless of the circumstance. And the only way is he, he, he draws that out. He wants you to be honest before God. Now, for those that are still uncomfortable about this kind of praying, I hope you'll be encouraged with this. There's a difference between what David is doing here and what we, makes us uncomfortable when we hear about these words. See, David here is going to God in prayer. He's not actually picking up the sword and going to battle with them, even though these people, in this case, have declared war on him. In our own lives, we have this emotion and we feel it, whether we are justified or are right in 
feeling this as David seems to be in this situation, or we're distorted in our thinking because fear has made something bigger and ourselves smaller, and, and you know, it's, it's just the, the instinct, and, and we're not right in, in thinking these harsh things. We are feeling them. Wrong would be for us to actually act on these things, but to spray these things, to say, Lord, this is what I want, this is what I fear. We are leaving justice and vindication to God. In some cases, God will see that that is the right thing to do, and he will work out his purposes by the way that he treats uh, those who are the enemies of, of his people, whether corporately or individually. But David in this situation is not taking the matters into his own hands. He's saying, Lord, this is what I feel. This is what I, I, I hope this is what you're going to do. But he's leaving it to God. And so he's real. He is raw. He is laying this out before God. God is at work within him, and he'll bring transformation, whether there's a renewal of the relationship, which since we don't know the relationship, we have no reason to believe that, to, that it happened, but we have no reason to believe it didn't happen. But it's an invitation for you to not overthink what you're praying. It's an invitation for you to just go before God and lay it out there. But there's also more important, because this whole thing is characteristics of what David actually says he's doing in, in verse 16. I call out to the Lord to save me. And so this, so this is Hebrew poetry and, and, and recorded. David is just in his raw emotion. He's crying out to God. He's saying, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I need. And he's engaging with God. And what we see from this is it's, it's vitally important for us to recognize that when we come to these times, we all have a fork in the road to choose. We can follow the natural instincts that psychologists tell us that we are inclined to do and actually biologically wired to do. God created us to respond in those ways. They are not in themselves bad. Or we can choose the other road, which is we may be feeling all of those things, but we can begin to engage God. We can have our angst, our experience, our anger, our frustration, whatever our circumstance, drive us to God. David chose to, to do that. Let me go back to Allender and Longman. They say this, oddly enough, it is fear of the world that drives us away from God. In other words, when we feel most frightened about our circumstances, we have the tendency to, to worry, and some of us worry in God's direction and call it prayer, but we just are so obsessed with whatever the circumstance is and how can we eradicate it. How can we escape it? How can we get out of it that we actually are not engaging God? We're just too, too consumed with this thing that now seems to be more of a God than God is because it has all of our emotion and all of our attention. And fear can either drive us from God or fear can drive us to God. But Allender and Longman go on and they say this, oddly enough, it is fear of the world that drives us away from God. Fear of God strips away all other fears and compels us to deal with God. Fear of God roots us not in trouble or our circumstances, but in the essence of our existence, which is those who have been created after the image of God, those who are the objects of God's affection, those whom God invites to come and to engage him, to talk to him, to worship him, to honor him, to experience his reassurance, his peace, his blessing.
But fear says, look over here. And the more we look over there, we don't look to God. And so we need to be prepared for that. We need to be aware of that. That we come to this fork and fear will take us away from God. Or we can commit to having fear driving us to God. I appreciate the words of Jerry Bridges in his book, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. He says this, in the area of adversity, the scripture teaches us three essential truths about God, truths we must believe if we are to trust him in adversity, and they are these. First, God is completely sovereign. Second, God is infinite in wisdom. And third, God is perfect in love. In other words, God is fully aware of whatever it is that you're going through. And because God is sovereign, he is allowing that or even raising that up for, uh, for whatever situation in your life or my life in order to strengthen us and to bring us to the end of ourselves to rest more and more in him, which we find our strength when we find that we are weak. We find his strength at work within us when we come to the end of our own strengths. And even though I may not understand the circumstances I'm in, and you may not understand the circumstances you're in. The third one is true and has been evidenced over and over and over again. God is love. I need to understand that, not necessarily what God is doing in my present circumstances. And Bridges goes on and he says this, prayer is the most tangible expression of trust in God. In other words, when we come to those circumstances where we just feel like we need to fight or we need to flight or whatever it is that we need to do, when we are trusting God, when we're turning our attention to God, the fact that we would speak to God, the fact that we would put it at God's feet, the fact that we would trust God with our feelings, our fears, our hopes, prayer is the most tangible expression of our trusting in God. And so I look at this passage and say, let our circumstances that none of us want drive us to the Lord. And so if you feel burdened right now, or you're overwhelmed this morning, if you're in the midst of your own dark night of the soul, I hope that this passage, this expression from David will give you encouragement. I hope that we will learn from him and that we will turn from our worst, fiercest, and most frightening enemy to the friend who was closer than a brother, to the one who himself embodied this psalm because it was his friends who betrayed him. It was the world that was against him, the greater David, let our circumstances, when we come to that fork, turn us to him. Because he is the one who hears our cries. He is the one who responds. He is the one who does more than we ask or that we would even imagine. Let us be a people to trust in the Lord. Father, we pray with thanksgiving for the reality that you record in your word that is not just pious, religious, from failure to success, that the good get good stuff and that the bad get evil stuff, but that you record the world as we experience it. 
But while I'm thankful, I pray that you would also impress upon me and all who hear that knowing is one thing and responding is another. I pray for those who are presently experiencing the dark nights of the soul. Lord, help them recognize that if they belong to you, you are using this for their transformation. When my next one comes, I pray that you will remind me that it is for my good and my transformation, my strength. We pray that we would be mindful of our own hearts and that we would be free before you. I pray, Lord, that you would remind us of how faithful you are, that we would trust you. That whether times are good or times are hard, we would speak with you through the gift of prayer that you've given us. Lord, lead us to be a people who use it. Cultivating that language, cultivating that part of the relationship with you. Let us come before you as children. Let us come before you honestly. And let us hear you speak to us. That we may praise your name. We pray this and all things in Christ and Redeemer King. Amen.